Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let us count the ways that Washington is the lamest major city in a snowstorm. Seriously, like, okay, I I understand that in legacy terms, Washington is sort of a southern city. But come on, people. This is like an inch of slush. Yeah. This is like become an excuse for everyone to just do no work today. Let's be honest. <laughs> I totally have a descending view here. Okay, go People ahead. don't plow the roads. And so actually an inch of unplowed snow is as big a problem as a larger snowstorm in a city that like, I don't know, cleans up after a snowstorm. Okay, so I live in an outlying neighborhood of this city and the snowplow went down my street twice this morning before I even left the house. I just want to say that, you know, there is a solution uh, to the problem of a snowstorm in Washington Global that, warming. <laughs> that Donald Trump is figuring out, according to esteemed reporter uh, Shane Harris, which is that he is overcoats. <laughs> no, it's no. too lame. No. It's yeah. too lame? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It, All right. really doesn't it doesn't make, make any sense. sense. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Overcoats edition. Hmm, what can we mean by that title? Following our abortive B-roll. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna work that out at the improv tonight? Yeah, Seriously. well. The routine's got a few kinks in it. <laughs> this might be the lamest snow city in the U.S., but that was the lamest pun in Washington right there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you just you just had to work it in, didn't I, you? Well, I was gonna try. I thought gonna I was set gonna it up. try. You we know, agreed was... that we were gonna wait for the opening, but no, 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 no. No, you no. Wanted to I, I, the I wanted title. to try. Yeah, no, I wanted to preview okay. the title in the B roll. That's okay. Uh, we are here in the uh, now much warmer New Jungle Studio. It was a little frigid when we walked in here. I'm here with Tamarakoff and Wittis, Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Shane. We're all wearing appropriate snow footwear. Happy snow day. <clears throat> yeah. I was just saying the older I get, the more I become that guy who complains about how this city can't hack it in the snow. Okay, but And do I grew you up in the south, but come on. Do you also complain about your neighbors who don't shovel their walk within oh, 24 hours? I all the time. Wait a minute. This whole, like, I grew up in the south thing. Sometimes you grew up in Oregon. Sometimes you grew up well, in the South. Well, technically, I grew up in both places. I was bi-coastal. <laughs> That's how Shane's so sophisticated sure now is. and so worldly. Back when I was bi. <laughs> <laughs> God, this podcast is going to get a nice little Just X on it this it up, week. Wrap it up. Bye. <laughs> this week on the, on the podcast, <laughs> President Trump. <laughs> <laughs> says his intelligence director, Dan Coates, is not loyal and may want to fire him. He's over Coates. Get it? Oh, yeah, I God. think he got it, Ben. <laughs> Thanks. Trump administration officials pushed a plan to sell nuclear power plants to Saudi Arabia, and hackers hit Australian political parties ahead of an election. Um, so let's start with uh, the, I guess, the, 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 it's no longer a, well, if there ever was a budding romance between Dan Coates and Donald Trump, I'm not sure if it ever was. But the – how do we say the bloom is off the rose? Is that right? 
The Rose is dead. He's tired. He's so last season. He's so last season. He's, He's getting voted off the island. Yeah. So Dan Coates, um, we reported this in the Post today. Uh, the president has told uh, advisors and there are other officials who are bracing for this that he feels that Dan Coates is not loyal and not on the team, as one Trump advisor said. We've talked before on the podcast about how Trump was furious at the DNI and the CIA director, but I think really more the DNI after the global threats hearing because he felt that when Dan Coates went out and actually spoke the truth about things like the status of the Iranian nuclear weapons program or the intelligence community assessment that North Korea was not likely to give up its nuclear weapons, the president was furious and thought that his officials were trying to undercut him, trying to make him look foolish or naive and out of touch. Uh, he lashed out at them on Twitter. The next day, it seemed like everything was fine. He was putting it behind them. He claimed that they told him they'd been misquoted at a live congressional hearing that you could watch on television. Um, but apparently, the president is still fuming over it and is, I think, now following a fairly well-worn pattern where he makes his displeasure known and then Dan Coates gets labeled as a dead man walking. So, Ben, you know, we've seen that pattern before, but what strikes me as potentially unique in this situation is that if he actually does follow through on this and fire Dan Coates, who he appointed, you know, a former Republican senator who, by the way, is close to the vice president and has known him from their days in Indiana, that will be, uh, I think, an, an original case of him actually just firing a senior administration official because he said something he doesn't like that happens to be true. Right. So I guess the first point is characterological, that Donald Trump actually seems to need somebody in his cabinet at all times who's in the doghouse because he's insufficiently loyal, you know, and and he tends to that that role migrates as he gets rid of people. Right. So it goes from Jim Comey, who was not part of the cabinet, of course, but was a part of the national security team to uh, Rex Tillerson, to Jeff Sessions, to Mattis. And now, you know, you've kind of purged all these people. And so you kind of circle back to the second group uh, and you're actually reaching the really bland. I mean, Dan Coates is not exactly a, 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 a what Trump would call a high energy personality, right? But he has now twice, as as your story reported, uh, been put in these very public situations in which he's been asked uh, direct questions or presented with stuff, and he has responded uh, with, you might call honesty, uh, candor, candor, uh, and uh, and that is, you know, from Trump's point of view, disloyal, and so I think all of the. Uh, or some of the energy that was devoted to hating Mattis uh, in recent months and hating Jeff Sessions over a long period of time has kind of trained onto Coates. It, he will not last under these circumstances. And one of the questions, I think the question for everybody in that circumstance becomes, how do you maintain a modicum of dignity in the face of this? And how do you, you know, to what extent do you kiss the president's ass? To what extent do you kind of uh, try to rehabilitate yourself with him? And to what extent do you go out cheerfully with a kind of Mattis like fuck you uh, that really does retain uh, a certain measure of of dignity and self-respect. And, you know, different people have handled that in different ways. I don't know Dan Coates 
at all and therefore have no particular instinct as to how he will handle it. But I do think, you know, a story, the, the kind of noises that give rise to a story like the one that you guys ran today, those are that's only the beginning and it will amp up and amp up and amp up from there. And the question really is, what is Dan Coates going to do in the face of that and how is he going to react? So I have a slightly different question. And that's, what is the point of Dan Coates? So he gets hired as the DNI, and he was always viewed as sort of a weird interim-style choice, right? He, he kind of had planned to retire. He was sort of an establishmentarian who was taking this job. It was actually in a period of time in which this administration was talking about eliminating the DNI entirely, sort of going back to an early, uh, you know, W. Bush administration kind of feud on, on the purpose of the agency. You know, now Coates has, as he has sort of throughout his tenure, once again said things that were plainly true in circumstances in which he had no choice. He's under oath, right? This is not like a big profile in courage in which he's sounding the alarm before Congress. He's offering plain factual representations about what conclusions the intelligence community has actually reached. It's not like he could have sat there and pretended as though they reached something else, right? These are all demonstrable facts. And so there's been substantial reporting that Coates isn't especially hands-on in his management of the intelligence community or ODNI generally, that his deputy Sue Gordon, who is extremely admired and uh, and well-regarded within the intelligence community, basically, you know, kind of runs day-to-day operations. We know that, so he's not doing that job. He's not actually running ODNI. We know that he's not getting the president to accept the intelligence that the intelligence community is generating, right? So to the extent that his job is to be the conduit that gets information to the president, he's not doing that. There's no evidence that, like other uh, people who've been in this difficult position, he's sort of drawing political fire or putting himself as sort of the insulator between the president and his agency, right? Even sort of we saw Jeff Sessions and, and people who, you know, are... I would not say had admirable tenures trying to sort of occupy this role. We certainly don't see Coates out there defending his workforce as decent, honorable, law-abiding people in the face of sort of threats from the president. So we have two years of this kind of bumbling, meandering, like Dan Coates is better than, I don't know, name sort of the parade of horribles of who could have been in that position. And so I I find myself a little bit baffled as like, what does he view the job? What is he there for? Like, what's the point, man? Okay, so I hear you. And I think that the fact that people like you are asking, what does it matter anymore, is itself evidence of our degraded expectations. To me, what's going on here should be a reminder of a couple of things that are fundamental issues for this president and this administration, particularly with regard to Congress and the intelligence community that are important. And it's why I think you guys, Shane, saw this as a story worth highlighting. And um, and it's why I think it's worth focusing on a little bit. The first is that he is an establishmentarian. He comes out of the Senate. And there was an assumption at the beginning of the Trump administration that cabinet appointees 
who came out of the Senate, who had their own set of relationships in the legislative branch, their own constituencies, because they had been elected from parts of the country, that they had some degree of their own capital that would protect them from the insistent demand of personal loyalty of this president and the capriciousness of this president. And we knew already that that wasn't true because we saw this happen with Jeff Sessions, where when the president first decided that he wanted to get rid of him, he floated it. Some members of Congress initially objected and then kind of faded away and said, well, the president has the right to appoint people in whom he has confidence. And now, lo and behold, boom, without any fanfare, without anyone expressing much concern at all, he's doing it again in a position where, and this is the second piece, you know, this position at the top of the intelligence community is precisely about ensuring that not just the president, but the legislative branch also is getting reliable, objective intelligence analysis and conclusions. And that's exactly what he did in front of Congress. And that's why the president wants to fire him. And that is a problem. And that's something that that should be ringing alarm bells for us, even though, yeah, we've seen it over and over again. And so it's not so much that, you know, Dan Coates himself is such a paragon of virtue. He's not making a robust public defense of his institution. Fine. But even in his passive manner, he was still playing a certain role. And the fact that the president can boot him as soon as he embarrasses the president by playing that role the way he is supposed to play it, to me, is a very troubling thing. But then what is your explanation for why Gina Haspel has not only escaped sort of the similar treatment, but as reported in The Washington Post, has actually sort of her stock has risen with the president? I right? have an so, answer for that. But okay. Ben, you go first if you want. To yeah, I want to say a few words in defense of Dan Coates. Yeah. Um, so first of all, the fundamental job of any agency head at this time is to protect their agency from the president. And I <laughs> that's not technically in the job description, but yes. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. the real job yeah, description. No, exactly. And to allow if if you like would is Dan, Dan Coates is not the personality that I most admire in politics, but if you if your agency is not suffering the predations of the president, you are doing something right. And the president, uh, as far as I know, has not done anything terrible to the Office of Director of National Intelligence or its staff. And the fact that Dan Coates has a deputy who is a uh, you know superb public servant who is able to run that agency on a day to day basis without probably the president of the United States having any idea who she is, uh, unless, unless he thought of nominating her to be the CIA director, which he you know, may have done at the time that he nominated Haspel. I think some of the staff know who she is. They but know, he not, yeah. but he is, she, that, the day-to-day -day activity of the NCTC and the various analytic and managerial components of the ODNI are not on the president's radar, as best as I can tell, means that Dan Coates is successfully absorbing whatever presidential bile or whatever is being directed in the way of his agency. Now, is he a dynamic figure? No. Uh, guess what? The dynamic figure, Jim Comey, lasted four months. And so he has managed. So, so you say two years and what has he done? I say, wow, two years and nothing's happened. That, that looks pretty good to me. But it's quite clear 
what he's doing in order to protect his agency. And, and I would say that his agency is the entire intelligence community, or at least we should be thinking about it that way. But it's clear that what he's, the reason why the president isn't focused on NCTC or any other sort of particular agency is because those agencies produce intelligence. The job of Dan Coats, to the extent that Trump is being briefed by principals, which historically, right, he actually sort of wants the, the directors to be doing his briefings, He's supposed to be getting that information to the president. But instead, it appears that if the president doesn't like the intelligence or doesn't like the information, the president just ignores it or Coates doesn't tell him it or right. And so that's not doing the job. It's but you just can't, distraction. You can't blame Coates for Donald Trump's un- – Donald Trump, Andy McCabe reports this week, confronted by U.S. intelligence assessments of North Korean missile capability – responds, I don't care. I believe Putin. Putin told me their missiles can't reach the U.S. Right. I don't care. He told me that too. I believe (laughs) Putin. Now, if you're dealing with that, you are not... Right. You can't blame Dan Coates for not being able to overcome that. And I think that the the problem now is that, you know, if we have an administration that is, or at least some in this administration, who are trying to present a narrative that there's intelligence that, for example, the Iranians have a strategic commitment to developing nuclear weapons, right? It does matter that you have a guy who's willing to go up to Congress and say, that's not what we think. <laughs> and, you asked the, and, and you asked the question, like, why has Gina Haspel risen in this? And I think one answer to this that, that is illustrative of the current situation that I think, you know, portends to something maybe not good. She is a consummate bureaucratic player. What she has managed to do is figure out, and she's a very good case officer, is how to manage the relationship with the president. Uh, I think, you know, be persuasive in his presence, be compelling, uh, be trustworthy without necessarily being loyal and whatever that means in his eyes. And has also been very happy to let Mike Pompeo be the lead dog in that sled. But but can I ask you a question about her, Shane? Yeah. Because one of the things that I was struck by is how close to the line of dishonesty she went up to in that hearing, the worldwide threat assessment hearing, where she is asked uh, uh, the question, you know, uh, have the Iranians abided by the JCPOA? And the the answer to that in the U.S. intelligence assessment is yes, they have abided by the agreement. And her answer was some repeated variant of, We've seen preparations to violate it. We've seen – right, she's – it, it, it was that we, we've, we've, we understand that they are talking about possibly violating if they feel like they're no longer going to get what right. they want out she, of the deal. She would not – I mean ultimately she didn't say anything that wasn't true and she did say – But she uh, catered. But she presented that data in a fashion that was as favorable to the president's pre-existing false position as she possibly could and had to be walked question by question through it. It was very careful. By contrast, when Dan Coates has asked something, he just gave an answer. No, that's absolutely right. And I would also say, though, I mean, I'm not defending either way. Gina Haspel not only has very little experience testifying in public, she does not like doing it. And I think you also saw her when she was kind of stuck in a moment where she had to start speaking to policy and not just information, which is what she likes to do. And I think she she fumbled there and you saw that that's an awkward place for her. But in terms of where things are kind of in the pecking order, because with Trump, it is always a pecking order. And I mean that literally, like someone else is going to get pecked once Dan Coates is out of the way and it might be her, Right. Um, is she has managed to 
sort of you know go back, manage her agency, let Pompeo handle the policy piece of it, which is a very unusual position for a CIA director, which often does see his role as having political and institutional clout. She has really behaved, and I don't mean this in a disparaging, disparaging way, as a functionary. She's running the CIA much the way that Sue Gordon is going off and running ODNI, and they are career people who are going to do what they do, and they're letting the politics and the policymaking kind of be handed off to someone else. I think, this is where I get into the second part about pretending to a dangerous situation, you can't operate forever in an environment like this with a president who is not only utterly political but utterly unpredictable and will find somebody else to beat up when Dan Coates is kicked to the curb, which he will be relatively soon, I think. I mean, look, my my final, you know, I can't let a nice sort of Dan Coates, I guess, stand since I've staked out my position here is that, look, uh, under President Trump, the U.S. intelligence community is in crisis and no one should fool themselves on uh, on that reality or how incredibly dangerous that is to the interests of the United States. And when you are the head of an agency and a group of agencies that are in crisis with profound ramifications for your nation, that is crying out for leadership. And there is just nothing that we've seen from Dan Coates that looks anything like leadership to me. So I hear you on that. I will just say that if you don't like Dan Coates's relatively low-key mode of defense, you are really not going to like what career civil servants are able to do without him. Or DNI Peter Thiel. (laughs) (laughs) And if you believe that, I've got some nuclear power plants in Saudi Arabia to sell you. Very nice transition, Shane. Uh, Also appearing in the Washington Post today. Oh, are we over coats now? Uh, Well, I mean, who? (laughs) Season is. She's so over Dan I'm so ready for spring weather. Lighter jackets. Um, my colleagues in the Post report, uh, there's actually, this did run in a number of papers, but uh, key members of the Trump administration pushed a plan to sell nuclear power plants to Saudi Arabia in the months after the inauguration, despite objections from members of the National Security Council and other senior White House officials. This is based on a new report from congressional Democrats, which actually is also based on internal White House documents and the account of unnamed whistleblowers. Uh, from within the White House, it said the objections, including the White House objectors, who included the White House lawyers, White House lawyers, and National Security Council officials, sorry, opposed the plan out of concern that it violated laws designed to prevent the transfer of nuclear technology that could be used to support a weapons program. A greater concern to some were potential conflicts of interest on the part of Michael Flynn. You remember him. Uh, who had advised a firm pitching the nuclear plan. So this may sound familiar to some people. We we, we had previous stories coming out of uh, this congressional committee, uh, the uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee, about Michael Flynn's role in pitching this sort of, I think it was called this Middle East Marshall Plan for Energy and the Financial Gains uh, that may have come to people who were pitching it in the conflict of interest there. What we're now learning, though, Tammy, is this objection from people, you know, at the highest levels of, of legal advice within the White House. And it sounds like this is a portrait of, uh, you know, out of control conflicts of interest. Uh, we can talk about the fact that it's Saudi Arabia as well. Um, but people pushing forward with a plan that was, you know, raising all kinds of red flags and clearly enough people internally thought that it was troubling enough that they decided to blow the whistle and go to Congress about it. Right. So we talked about this, I think, shortly after Flynn resigned because this was one of the things laid at his door. 
<clears throat> that he had pushed this based on uh, a conflict of interest, that he had a financial interest in this deal, um, or that he was doing it on behalf of friends. And this company that he was consulting for all the way through the transition, apparently, is a company that was put together by a group of retired U.S. military officers uh, with a rather distinguished advisory board, including, oddly, uh, former Obama administration peace process guru Dennis Ross. So if you're wondering why Dennis Ross wrote a really obsequious column about Mohammed bin Salman last spring, hmm, think pieces are starting to come together now maybe. Um, but in any event, look, the Saudis have been interested in buying nuclear power plant technology for a long time. Uh, I think even the Clinton administration was looking at trying to sell them, like the Bill Clinton administration, nuclear power plants. But under U.S. law, we can only transfer this kind of capacity within the confines of a bilateral agreement that's negotiated between the U.S. government and the government we're selling to, in which they undertake to address specific proliferation concerns. It's called a one-two-three agreement for the section of the law that um, that requires it. And, it. and that agreement then has to go in front of Congress, and Congress has a chance to chop on it. So that what is being described in the new reporting here is just this process end run that Mike Flynn and his staffer, Derek Harvey, attempted to engage in, in which they sought to get the president to sign off on a document approving the sale of nuclear power plants to the Saudis or technology for nuclear power plants to the Saudis without a one, two, three agreement and without consultation with Congress. In other words, violating U.S. law really blatantly. And, you know, Derek Harvey is not some neophyte. He knew exactly what he was doing here. And by the way, where did Derek Harvey go when he was fired from the National Security Council staff? In, apparently for doing this, among other things, he went to work for Devin Nunes on Capitol Hill. So um, all of this is, I think, number one, a portrait of conflicts of interest and the revolving door of Washington. Number two, the extent to which individuals close to President Trump and the campaign and the administration were willing to try to manipulate him into making decisions as president that would benefit them financially. Uh, and number three, it's a really revealing portrait of the process shit show that was the National Security Council under Michael Flynn. Yeah, so I, the thing, the, the points that sort of stood out to me, even though it shouldn't be surprising, is after Michael Flynn is fired for lying to the FBI after it is clear that Flynn has committed crimes and, and plainly clear, he is continuing to be involved in these discussions. And in fact, this article says that Derek Harvey said in internal meetings in March 2017, he spoke with Flynn every night. And so as these sort of like rotten apples are supposedly rooted out again and again, we find out, oh, no, they're still very much in the circle. And there really is no such thing as an ex-Trump White House official, right? They're all, I mean, the swampy nature of it is pretty astounding. And it, and it really does show culturally 
deep down in the White House, they didn't care. They don't care that people are under federal investigation. They don't care if people have broken the laws or, or, or broken rules. And so I think it's relevant to keep in mind as we see the president attempting to sort of distance himself. You know, that said, this is the corruption story. And my gut is there are a hundred that are similar, right? The pursuit, the, the absolute disregard for ethics rules that are designed to prevent exactly these kinds of conflicts in order to ensure that the interests of the United States are what are being pursued and not the interests of some person's pocketbook. And the big giant pocketbook here is not Derek Harvey, it's Jared Kushner. And so one of the most relevant pieces to me in the piece is when that this uh, House report notes that one of the power plant manufacturers that would benefit from a nuclear deal, Westinghouse Electric, is a subsidiary of Brookfield Asset Management, the company that provided financial relief to the family of Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior White House advisor. Brookfield Asset Management took out a 99-year lease on Kushner Kushner family's deeply indebted New York City property at 666 Fifth Avenue. Wow, I had actually missed that tidbit in the story completely. Susan, it's a very small world of people who buy Manhattan real estate and also start nuclear power. (laughs) You're like, look, I I need a place for 100 years. You're in a ton of debt. This is a great deal. We all would. I mean, look. In some ways, I don't even blame these people because honestly, like the opportunities there, I guess you would have to be an idiot if for the low, low price of a 99-year lease in some, you know, Jared Kushner's worst property deal, that's going to buy you, right, uh, you know, nuclear, nuclear facilities in Saudi Arabia. I, I get like it's a, it's a bargain deal. You'd be crazy not to do it. But it's... The level of open, flagrant corruption, (laughs) the idea that this person is not just a senior White House official, which would be stunning. He's the president's son-in-law who is hired at the White House in in flagrant violation of anti-nepotism rules, whether or not you want to argue about if they apply to the White House staff. And so that to me, it's like... Every now and then, these pieces just reach out and, like, slap you across the face of it's the corruption, stupid, of the story of the Trump presidency and the story of the Trump administration. And when it comes together in ways that really, really make clear the stakes here, really make clear the way the interests of the American people are being sold out and sold out in ways that can't necessarily be undone by some future president or some future administration. It's, it is hard. It's tempting to sort of let just become numb to everything. But I do think stories like this just it really clarifies what is going on and just frankly how gross it is. Ben, this makes me wonder in listening to, to Susan's laying it out this way. We've been focused on the collusion narrative for much of the past two years, uh, and that may be coming to a close, or it may not be. But it does make me wonder if the uh, if if the real story here is, in fact, as she's arguing, one of corruption, right? Which is seems to me there are much clearer 
easier to define instances of possible corruption than there are collusion or coordination with Russia, which has always been a nebulous, murky kind of story. But I mean, to, to, to your point, Susan, I mean, these things are – they're right here. I mean, there are whistleblowers documenting this. There are, there are facts backing this up. I mean, are we moving into a phase now where we're just focusing on the story that's really been kind of more plain to everyone and more obvious, but, you know, maybe we're sort of getting past the rush idea and just focusing on this basic garden variety self-dealing and process breakdown that leads to this kind of manipulation of a president for financial gain? So a few things. First of all, I don't think this is, there's anything garden variety about this. Well, I mean, like in I the mean, sense of like the, corruption happens all the time. No, no, collusion but, with Russia doesn't. But yeah. corruption involving the export of nukes or or nuclear power plants in in potential violation of export control rules in a fashion designed to financially benefit the president's under investigation former national security advisor and current son-in-law is a genuinely unusual proposition. And in her- uh, Really, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's son-in-law? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, there was that time that Millard Fillmore you know, like exported a nuclear power plant. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't happen all that often. You know, in her very uh, well-put-together rant just now, there is a uh, Susan major Susan Hennessy theme that she left out that I want to like Susan almost always includes this point and didn't this time. And I want to add it to the points that she made, which is that, you know, these things that we call ethics rules, when they're put in contexts like this, are actually national security protections. And, you know, this is a good example of why, because if you let judgments like this be corrupted by the sort of pecuniary benefit of individuals, you may end up exporting nuclear power plants in circumstances where the national security of the United States actually as – You could provoke a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Just say you, maybe. You could. And, <laughs> Which and you ostensibly we are trying to stop. Right. And and so, <laughs> so the, I mean the first thing is that I, I everything that's I, – I don't think it's quite right to say it's garden variety. I think it's – this is – it, it's it's an extreme and unusual example of corruption. That said, I think your broader point is absolutely right. And, you know, the Russia stuff is the high-profile issue that arose during the campaign and that has followed Donald Trump almost since the beginning of his campaign and that we are all fixated on because it led to the firing of the FBI director and a very aggressive attack on federal law enforcement and because it was so flamboyant and out there to the beach from the beginning and implicated the circumstances of his election. So we're all really focused on that. And there are these other remarkable events that happen along the way, some of which dovetail with the Russia stuff and some of which, like this one, do not. Uh, and I do think if we believe the stories that the Russia investigation is winding down, it follows that a lot of these stories are going to heat up. And one of the interesting questions that I have about this story is, other than this House committee, who's investigating this? I mean, well, it's a very powerful House committee. Let's not forget. Yes. But yeah, you're and, right. You know, to Tammy's, you know, Tammy, you just sort of joked of you might provoke a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. One point that this article makes is that 
Many American experts on proliferation say it's in U.S. interest to sell American nuclear technology to the Saudis to prevent the Russians and Chinese from sort of rushing in here. Is that bullshit? Like, what is that? Isn't that a substantive argument for, yes, we actually, you know, we, it is in our interest to transfer this this technology. I mean, it's Absolutely. so hard for me to accept that on its face in when it's couched in so much corruption. But are we being unfair? Is there actually like a good national security argument for this? There is a good national security argument for the United States to be the one the country to sell nuclear power plants to the Saudis rather than the Russians and Chinese, precisely because we have these requirements in law and policy to uh, deal with concerns about proliferation, and the Russians and the Chinese don't. So yes, as long as we're following the rules, but it's entirely contrary to our interest and subversive of that argument to sell nuclear power plants to the Saudis without those safeguards, which is what uh, Derek Harvey and, and Michael Flynn were apparently trying to do. Well, let's talk about something entirely less complicated. Australia's major political parties have been hacked by a sophisticated hacker attack of the, ahead of the election. See, we it's know that story. If you're hacking everybody, then we it's a level story. playing field. We know, we, we, we've, we've done this story a thousand times. We can just move <laughs> on to the music. Um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison in Australia has revealed that their political parties there suffered cyber attacks, this is according to the Sydney Morning Herald, alongside the Parliament House computer network several weeks ago by a quote-unquote sophisticated state actor. Uh, an announcement that's likely to intensify speculation that China was behind the attacks, which are coming just three months ahead of the federal election, although the prime minister said there was no evidence of election interference. So in thinking about this story, you know, it, it struck me a couple things. One, these stories actually are becoming more commonplace. I mean, it's becoming like data breaches where you just lose track and they become part of the background noise where you say, yes, a sophisticated actor, probably China, maybe Russia, maybe Iran, uh, is meddling in an election. It leaves open the broader question of, of exactly why and what they have to gain here, which I suppose you could act and ask in many of the instances in which there's state-sponsored cyber espionage. What also struck me was interesting too is that the prime minister came right out and said it. Um, and we've had a long debate in the United States about whether President Obama should have come out and called this out ahead of an election. And it struck me that, OK, maybe this is a moment to pause and reflect on here is the head of a country coming out. Uh, saying it happened. Granted, it happened to multiple political parties, so perhaps it's not a partisan issue. But, I mean, Ben, what what do you think about that? I mean, that 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 kind of makes me stop and say, is there something to learn here from what the Australians are doing and how they're handling this? All right. So the first thing is, let's be really reptilian and amoral about this. There is nothing wrong with whoever did this, hacking political parties and trying to steal their data. We do that. And, you know, in foreign countries, in yeah. foreign countries, you know, identifying political movements that may take power and getting your best intelligence on on what they are and what they're up to and what their plans are. I mean, during the Snowden revelations, it, it became clear that we had tapped Angela Merkel's uh, phone when she was the opposition leader. And so in and of itself, there is nothing terribly objectionable about foreign espionage against the political movements of a country that you want insight into. 
That said, the fact that the offense is so much better than the defense at this point raises the question of how a democratic polity, assuming that other countries are going to do this to us, should respond to that. And I think the Australian prime minister's way of handling it, which was uh, loud, immediate disclosure of the fact that it happens, putting on the record what you could put on the record, helps inoculate against what we experienced which was the systematic disclosure of some of that information in a fashion that uh, was highly prejudicial. Now, here's the danger. The danger is that as the Russians did with us, by the way, when the DNC was hacked, there was no secret about that in our community either. What happened was the strategic differential release, right? And the fact that you, the Russians then chose to release this information. So it's not enough to disclose that the breach occurred, that the theft happened or whatever happened, the hacking happened. You have to somehow have a way of inoculating the public against the uh, consequences of the utilization of what was taken. And there, I think the French did a really good job and we did not. And so I do think there are lessons to take from the way the Australians are handling this. Um, but I, I also think we won't really be able to evaluate how they handle it until whoever did this, presumably the Russians, the Chinese, or both, uh, start using that information in a fashion that is designed to achieve some strategic objective and we get to see how have the Australians managed to inoculate themselves against that use. So I actually think this story is being pretty dramatically misread or at least prematurely read. So yes, there are Australian elections in May. Yes, there was an attempted breach, although no information appears to have been successfully stolen. There is nothing to suggest that the two are related to one another at all. And even though sort of people are taking note of the fact that the Australians are usually very reticent in attribution, and in this case sort of made public statements, they actually didn't say much in their public statements at all. They said it's a sophisticated state actor, but they didn't say it was the Chinese. And actually, the news report makes pretty clear, at least early news reports make clear, that they don't appear to have any idea who it was. Because whenever you're saying, well, it looks like it was the Chinese, but maybe it was the Russians or maybe it was the Iranians or maybe it was the North Koreans, that means you have no idea who it was. You just have a set of suspicions. And so... You have an attempted breach, which might be just kind of the ordinary espionage that comes, that happens all the time and isn't properly understood as election interference at all or election related at all. You don't actually have anything taken. You don't really know who did it. And so, you know, there's there's this temptation to sort of tie everything together and say, right, this is now the Chinese are taking sort of, uh, you know, uh, the page out of out of the Russian playbook and sort of what this thing is. I just I don't think there's the data for that. And I actually think one of the interesting things is that news reports are so forward leaning on wanting to to draw those sort of ties together. One of the interesting things is that this is the Australians on their own and they usually aren't making big, splashy public statements when they are the only victims. 
They tend to prefer to operate within sort of the Five Guys Alliance. These are, you know, this is a small nation that sees safety in numbers, especially when they are maybe sort of accusing the Chinese of things. They tend to not like to make them angry. And so this is just, this just at for now strikes me as just a really odd story. And in some ways, the fact that the government decided to come out and make a statement that was going to draw this information but then didn't provide the content and write the specificity. Who was it? What happened? Was it related to the election? Was it unrelated to the election? Has caused everybody to sort of run down all of these various rabbit holes where we just don't know yet. So I think there are a couple of data points one could add to the picture that might provide some context for this Australian decision. And let me start by saying I'm speculating here, and I could be completely wrong. But We should stand up a rational security intel agency, though. We totally should. To inform you. So first of all, the decision to go public about it before they had done enough forensics to make a clear attribution and, and to make that attribution in a way that's credible right, in the way that you're describing, Susan, it, it's a choice, right? Now, given that these were hacks of parliament, you know, and parties, and they had to change all those passwords, there was no way for the fact of the hack not to be public, right? So then it's a question of if it's going to get out, how do you how do you frame it in the way that is most important for you? I think the Australians are probably in a place where they're feeling very vulnerable to Chinese hacking and to Chinese penetration because they have experienced it in ways that we do know was China, whether it was Chinese hacking of some of their government agencies, scientific agencies last year, or Chinese intellectual property theft using Australian companies to try and get information about U.S. technology. Um, last year. And so, you know, when we when the US government indicted some Chinese for intellectual property theft, the Australians were really supportive of us very publicly on that. So I think they're feeling very sensitive about Chinese efforts to penetrate their country, their economy, their systems. And so maybe there's a little bit of deterrence going on here. But then again, you would think they'd want to be able to call it out with a lot of specificity and evidence, and they clearly weren't ready to do that. Um, but the other thing that's going on here is within the Five Eyes, this argument about China, which is a broader argument about China that exists all over the world and all over the tech community, which is how much of what China is doing is, you know, malicious or malignant, and how much of it is just like, hey, they're rising power, they're building this capability, they're flexing their muscles, and hey, we can all make a lot of money here. Right. And that argument is coming to a head now over Huawei, where the United States is making a big push to get the other five eyes to keep Huawei out of their domestic markets. And Canada is resisting and the UK is resisting. And who's on our side in this? Australia. So to me, I, I think there might be a little bit of a, sort of an alliance of interest. I do think that there is one really, really clear lesson to draw from this. And it's the one that in the United States, we keep refusing to make. And that's the vulnerability of the United States Congress. It is only a matter of time until there is a major episode similar to this 
targeted at, at Congress. And we spend a lot of time focusing on executive agencies and election systems. And Congress spends a lot of time sort of throwing stones from an extremely fragile glass house. And that has been one issue that has just not gotten traction in the United States. The networks of Congress are a disaster, a security disaster, and they have got to get their own House and Senate in order uh, if they're going to defend themselves against inevitable attacks that are coming. On that note, I just want to say to any foreign intelligence agency that is targeting (laughs) Mitch McConnell's uh, uh, communications, uh, you're going to be really bored. <laughs> I mean, don't you don't you assume that at this point? Because as you said, Shane, these these breaches are so common now. I mean, at a certain point, people writing emails in the U.S. Congress must assume that their stuff is not going to remain private. You you would think so, but I mean, human nature is such that people usually don't take that to heart. I think, and then say crazy things in emails anyway. But yeah, I think you should assume that there's at least a good chance that somebody's already read it more than the people you sent it to. <laughs> um, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tammy, you want to go first? I, I'm delighted to share with you this object lesson, which was sent to us by listener and friend Joe Reinwine. As you all know, we got our, um, our rational security swag up on the Lawfare store uh, a few weeks ago, and Joe went out and bought himself a rational security T-shirt and sent us a photo. Joe is a an avid practitioner of meditation uh, and goes on meditation retreats, and it's and so he sent us a photo of himself meditating calmly in his rational security T-shirt. And so I would just like to say, Joe, thank you for demonstrating the way in which our podcast helps you maintain your sanity in this crazy, crazy Maybe world. it's after listening to our podcast, he has to meditate <laughs> to regain sanity. No, see, I think we add to the zen <laughs> of the experience. We need like we? a gong right now. Yeah. Just, right. Just chill yeah. a, a harp in Boom. the background. Yes. <laughs> uh, Susan. I have an object. Um, so my object is uh, my mother was out visiting some family uh, over the weekend um, and came across a box of letters to the editor that my grandfather wrote, um, and one in particular that uh, she took a picture of and sent to me is a letter that my grandfather wrote in 1960, uh, a few weeks before the presidential election in which uh, Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon, um, entitled Americans Have the Right to Criticize Administration. And in it, he is extolling the importance and virtue of uh, self-criticism as what as what has made America great and its citizens free and strong um, and is really speaking to the importance of the value of the First Amendment and the importance of not sort of demonizing one another or the press. Um, and it, it is remarkable in the sense that it could have been written yesterday and you really would have no idea. Um, and so it was just a nice... Uh, Reminder of the kind of man he was, which uh, was a really wonderful person, um, and a reminder that we have been fighting these fights um, and preserving these values against uh, people who do not necessarily share them uh, for a very long time. So there you go. My grandpa from 1960. Thanks, Grandpa. 
That's awesome. Uh, my object is I'm actually going to do a little log rolling for the Lawfare podcast. Yes. If you have not checked it out. Talk about corruption. <laughs> <laughs> Talk just, about self-dealing. Just the usual garden variety It's just very light treason. I don't know what the problem <laughs> is here. Um, it's very uh, cool and very legal. Very <laughs> cool, very legal podcast. Law, podcast. Uh, no, it was it was a great interview that uh, David did with um, uh, Marie Harf and Bill Harlow, who, uh, among other things, had both worked uh, in the CIA Public Affairs Office uh, in senior levels in the past, and it was a discussion about how an intelligence agency, namely the CIA, actually has a public affairs component, which surprises people a lot, I think, that there is actually a, you know, an office that is trained and tasked to go out and interact with people like me, who are often calling them up, asking them to talk about things they're not supposed to talk about. Um, but it was great for a number of reasons, one of which was that it um, debunked a lot of myths, I think, in the popular culture about how public affairs people actually work. Like, you know, no, they are not routinely lying to reporters. No, they are not <laughs> slipping classified information to reporters that they like. Um, but they do do things like no, – uh, They're not routinely doing it. They're constantly <laughs> – that's all they do. That's all they do. Shane's like, just They just have give the it. lies basket, the in-basket for lies and the in-basket totally. for classified slipping. And it had depends <laughs> on how good a boy you've been, which one you get. <laughs> and we sit there and beg outside the office. They know who's been naughty and who's, who's been, been nice. nice. Right, because they control everything. Uh, no, but it's it's a great podcast, and uh, and I've and I've worked with both of those people before, and it was it was just, it was really good. And I, one of the things that I try to remind, actually, um, both journalism students, but also intelligence professionals, when I have the chance to go out and talk or, or give a talk or a lecture or something like that, um, <clears throat> is I always do give a shout out to the CIA Public Affairs Office, which is very robust. It's often staffed by people who are actual intelligence officers who've worked in areas of expertise. But I always say it is really a remarkable thing that we are able in a society such as ours to have a clandestine, sometimes covert intelligence function and a free and open press and that those two things can coexist and sometimes work together. It is a remarkable feature of our democracy. It is highly unusual, I think, in the democratic world, maybe even unique when you think about it. So anyway, check it out. Really and interesting sometimes conversation. they tweet about puppies. Yeah. Well, you know, because they want to like, you know, control the puppies. <laughs> and then there's like a weird conspiracy theory about the puppies. The puppies are going to turn against <laughs> us. They're talking there's to the like puppies. There's like a puppy body double. Oh, <laughs> Go research those guys. You're going to like it. Check it out. Uh, but in the meantime, that brings us to the end of the podcast. We have to go trudge back out into the snowy slush. Uh, Slushy snow. Yeah, exactly. But before we do that, a reminder that national security, rational security, all national security is a production of Lawfare. (laughs) Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, yes. (laughs) National security brought to you by Michael Flynn and Lawfare. The Marshall Flynn. Michael Flynn is what happens when national security is brought to you people by people other than Lawfare. Just so turn it over to us. Think yes, about that when you're making your, your – considering your charitable giving for 2019. <laughs> or buying merch. <laughs> or buying merch. We don't have galoshes and snow boots. But if we did, you could find them on thelawfarestore.com, right? Yeah. I got it right this week. You did. That's good. Okay. I'm so proud of you. Thank you very much. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a nice rating and a review. It has really helped people find the podcast and share the love. 
and extend the family. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Padia Howell. Music this week by Dan Coates in his new oboe solo rendition of Hit the Road Jack. <laughs> Very good. Wait, what? Oboe. That is sad oboe. <laughs> the loneliest of instruments. <laughs> Oh, he needs Aww. Sophia Yan to like play a spicier version of that song. Indeed. Turn that smile frown upside down, Dan Coates. <laughs> You'll way, soon be a I- free man. The idea of hit the road jack played on the oboe, <laughs> if you just pause over, over in a moment, is very comic. Yeah. And very is. amusing. I could see him doing it. Yeah. Maybe he has a secret oboe fixation. With Sophia's an accompaniment. Totally. I'm buying tickets. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.